Hi, and welcome to Where the White Coats Come Off. We are Katie and Beth, and we are here to help you get into PA school and then get through PA school. We are so excited to bring you today's episode. Are they still mostly GPs, which is our uh, version of primary care, or kind of everywhere? So I guess we're probably around about 2,500 qualifying PAs now working in the health service, and every year we're adding almost 1,000 now. Wow. Um, because there's 34 programs, so every year. So they're working in every aspect. They're working in my specialty in the EMT. There's, there's quite a significant core in um, neurology and neurophysiology. There's also quite a significant core in mental health, but primary care, internal medicine, as we call it general medicine here, orthopedics, emergency medicine, women's uh, health uh, also, OBGYN is a... Uh, quite a significant cohort there also. So pretty much every every awesome. aspect of medicine, there's now PAs there, and they're not struggling to get jobs. So I, I, I'm a little, I was a little bit worried, and still am a little worried, that supply might outstrip demand. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see any PAs unemployed or waiting for jobs. Right. Uh, but so far, so good. Uh, we seem to be keeping up with you know, up with, up with demand at the moment. So I was going to just ask, is there any other country uh, UKPA can work in? Obviously, they can't work here. Is there any other country that they're going to? So you're, you're scratching my itch, which is international, and I love I, I love international work. Um, Us too. <laughs> yeah. So let me tell you about the International Academy of Physician Associate Educators. Um, back, this sounds like a, the beginning of a country song. In, in a bar in Tucson, Arizona, um, in 2007, um, a group of us were sitting having a drink at PAEA conference, and we felt that there needed to be an international PA educators forum. And after a couple of beers, we really felt this was a great idea. After two or three more, we decided that we were going to do it, which is always a dangerous thing. But here we are, all these years later, and we are, I think, in our 14th year um, as the International Academy of PA Educators. We bring together PA educators, myself, Professor Farringer, uh, one of my colleagues, Nick Ross from Birmingham University, and uh, Dana Sayre-Stanhope, who was at Emory. Uh, She's now setting up a brand new program in San Diego. And the the four of us decided we were going to do it. So we, we did it. We launched this organization and it's still going to this day, we've got a board members, and our board members are from Zambia, uh, they're from Kenya, they're from South Africa, they're from the UK, and they're from the US. And every year we have a forum in it. The 10th anniversary we held it in Kentucky, uh, at uh, UK. Remember um, that? That was a few years ago, though. Yeah, that was 2017. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. When is your next one, and where? Um, so the next one is kind of watch this space, because... COVID could have stopped us traveling. In, two, in 2019, we met in um, Zambia, um, and that was just incredible. We had the most wonderful time in Zambia. Last year, we didn't have one at all. We had, we had a virtual conference. Um, but if you go to iapae.com, you'll pick up our, our website. Uh, this year, we're still debating, but I think it's going to, again, be virtual. And then we're hoping to relaunch with a, a, a big conference next year somewhere. 
I was in Zambia right before COVID hit. It's an awesome oh, country. Wow. They've got medical officers there who are working very similar to the way PAs work. And uh, Dr. David Lasale um, is in uh, Lusaka, and he is the dean of the university there, and he is a medical officer. He's on our board. You know, I remember that there were some of our students that went over to, I guess it was Kenya, that went over to Kenya for okay. a rotation. Any other countries reached out to you for you to help them develop a program? In 2008, um, I went down to South Africa. Again, it was the same band of brothers. It was myself and Professor Farringer. We were invited by the Department of Health there to go and advise them on their program. So we helped them set up their program in 2008. And there's a great American PA, Scott Smalling, who's at WITS now. He's the program director there. And uh, they've got a great program there. And there's programs in Pretoria. I think there's a total of about five programs in South Africa. Um, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, you must remember, Sub-Saharan Africa had PAs, or this, this analog, before before the first PAs in the United States. Ghana started their first program in the late 50s. Wow. So in Sub-Saharan Africa, they worked out pretty quickly that actually having one physician for like, you know, 50,000 or 100,000 population was never going to work. And what you had to do was to, to train, uh, you know, to train the physician assistant type model and the University of Ghana in Accra and the Contempo Rural Health College in, in Sinyani, sorry, in Contempo, north of Sinyani, um, have been running since the very, very early 60s or late 50s. So I sat through a graduation there in 2009, I think it was, and we were in 40 degrees of heat, 40 degrees centigrade. Oh, okay. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta do the math on that. <laughs> I think that's about 110 degrees Fahrenheit, oh. and we were there for probably about three hours, sitting under a canopy in full academic dress, oh. uh, and uh, watching over 280 graduates graduate. <laughs> oh my gosh! I'm like sitting on the stage underneath the light. You know, <laughs> like that's not enough. It's great for weight loss. <laughs> Professor Farringer, at least, I think he went to Saudi Arabia or something like that to start probably. So Professor Farringer has been prolific. I mean, so, you know, I, let's let's credit uh, David with some really important things. So he helped us set up in the UK, and that's, that's a part of his heritage. He advised, along with myself, in the setting up of programs in South Africa. He went out to, to Saudi Arabia, and he set up the program in Saudi Arabia. And it was a military program. So, you know, I mean, it was full of frustrations because he, he had to work in, in a sort of military methodology. But, you know, he, the program is, is up and running. It's very oh. so, solid and sound. And that's, the, that's thanks to David Farringer. I think New Zealand has a program now, too. New Zealand has a program. I mean, there, there are programs in New Zealand and you know, obviously in Canada in the Netherlands, in Germany, in France, in India, in Nepal. I mean, the, the number of countries, you know, when you look at Uganda, Rwanda, Kenya, Liberia, the Ivory Coast, um, you know, all, all of the sub-Saharan countries have a, some sort of analog of the PA. Uh, it's a global movement. What we're trying to do with IAPAE is to find a, 
repository of knowledge to, so that we people can set up programs by dipping into this repository of knowledge. And okay. students can join. Students can join IAPAE as well and um, faculty as well. So. How can we help you? Um, I think just promoting that um, IAPAE exists and, and getting the students to understand that one of the things that I put into my talks, and Beth, you might remember this, is that you know we have a we have a responsibility, uh, and particularly in countries where we have a where wealth is not an issue, as it were, and we are privileged, and we're privileged to be able to practice. We're we have a responsibility to help, and we have a responsibility to help countries that need our support and need our care. I don't talk about them as third world countries. I think that's patronizing and I think it's uh, it's not true. But they're, they're countries who are developing. Um, and so it's really important that those countries that are developing, you know, gain support from us and gain assistance from us. And that could be one of the things that we're looking forward to trying to do is things like faculty exchanges, Mm -hmm. faculty development and let me tell you we learn as much from our colleagues in all of these countries sure. India has got an enormous number of PAs that are working um, and I was privileged to, to go and speak at the Indian uh, Association of Physician Assistants I think it was 2019 it might be 2018 uh, last year's kind of messed with everything <laughs> it's so true <laughs> Um, but it was it was great, and a, a colleague called Shiv Kumar is is leading uh, the way in India, and Samu Chatterjee at uh, the University of Kentucky is is a, a one of the conduits into India also. So you know it's it, it, we've got a responsibility, each and every one of us, to to do something. I really love that because we've actually had quite a few students who are interested in perhaps working overseas, and they weren't sure. You know, obviously the United States has so much more legality than a lot of countries do, like where they could work, what they could do. And so just knowing that there's so many other PAs, there is infrastructure, people understand what they can do in all these other countries is fantastic. Because some of these places might need, you know, some trained PAs as they're trying to get their programs off the ground and trying to figure out what's going on. So that's but you know, Beth, the important thing is that one of the things I learned very early on, when, I, when uh, David Farringer and I were in South Africa advising them. There was another colleague. And that colleague talked very much about an American model. And what's really important is we have a responsibility to, to help. We have a responsibility to share. We have a responsibility to open our resources and encourage where necessary. But we have no right to make it anything other than the model for Kenya, for, you know, wherever the country is in the world. It has to be their model. Um, and it's really important that we remember that because yeah. I think that we're, yeah, completely different. So, you know, that, that's just a kind of pet hate of mine. Yeah. Is I hate to hear, um, I've, I've heard a number of speakers talking about what we need to do is take our model to wherever. No, 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 you don't. What we need to do is go and be a resource, but help them to be clear about the model they need and how we can help support developing that for their country. 
And when I think about it, it makes so much sense because, you know, you go to Africa, you're going to see a lot of more infectious diseases. And, you know, you're not going to see chronic diabetes from being overfed, you know, every other patient. And so you have to realize that, that the training and the needs and, and what you have to know is going to differ because some of the things that you don't see in our country, like you might oh, not see polio in our country, but it's still absolutely. alive in other places. Absolutely. And things like, you know, when you look at some of the countries across the globe and you look at their public health data and you see the incidence of cancer is very small, and you think, I wonder what it is that they're doing that's different because cancer is so small. The answer is, it's not because cancer is small and they're doing something different. It's because their expected life is shorter because public health isn't good, uh, access to medicine isn't good. So because their, their, their general life expectancy is lower, you're not getting those cancers that happen as you get older. Right. Um, so, you know, th there is a, there's a responsibility for us to try and kind of you know, be be the advocate and be the um, resource, but on their uh, on the terms of the country that we're helping to understand what it is that they need yeah. and how we can help that to be a reality. Yeah, I love that because if it's not what they need and a way that they can sustain and something that works with their culture and the way they do their medicine, that it's never going to grow. It's never going to yeah. be what you want it to be never. because it doesn't fit. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you can't shoehorn something into, you know, whichever country you want to think of and make it fit because it simply won't. You know, if what we're going to do is go and say, right, we're going to tackle your diabetes and your cancer, they'll be sitting there looking at us as though they were crazy because for them, malaria right. and infant mortality, you know, and, and you know, and survivability in childbirth things like that are the, the higher priorities. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but it makes so much sense. You're right. I mean, one model is not going to fit all because they're not no. going to be so different. No. And, and it'd be really good, and I, 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 I will continue to do it as long as I can, is to champion with the students, think about your place in the world. Think about where you fit and think about what your responsibility is um, and how you share that how you share that knowledge, how you share that skill. It's not all about paying back student loans, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there's three things, that, well, there's there's birth, income tax, student loans, and death. These are the three <laughs> things. So let's not worry about them. No, I love that because it is becoming, I mean, medicine in general, you know, doctors at borders, there's so many programs out there anyways, and the PAs are becoming more and more, you know, yeah, involved yeah. in, and so, I just, I love the fact that you're right, you know, in your community, you have to figure out the needs of this community and fit it to that community. We're, we're like, so exciting just to think of, like, how much our profession has grown just since we entered it, you know, 12 years ago or how many years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, that, to me, is just incredible when you think about the numbers. I mean, I remember meeting those first students, and they were like, nobody knows what a PA is, and now you have 34 programs. And Yeah. And people, still, people still aren't 100% sure. You know, at least we now know that PAs are now embedded in the healthcare system. Right. And when it comes to workforce planning, people talk about, you know, how many PAs are we going to, where are they going to be deployed? You know, that wasn't even a conversation all these years ago. Even when that. we went to school, they didn't know what PA was. People thought it was personal assistant. That's what it used to stand for. I remember I remember like, I'm not a personal assistant. I'm a physician assistant. And I remember during my clinicals, they just didn't know. But now, I'd say most people in our country at least know, maybe not everybody, but it was number one job in America for two years oh, in a row. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Look at where it sits in the, you know, the top 
the top three of jobs in America. You know, the, the PA has sat for, for quite a number of years in that yeah. top three and very often the top job. We just, I love hearing about like the other countries and like the healthcare. Because I remember when I did my rotation over there, the healthcare was so different. It's just it's a different type of system over there. And it's something that unless you've been over there or worked in it, like you don't really understand it. And so I, I love I think that. It's really important that the, the people who subscribe to this and who will actually see this understand that socialized medicine is not socialist medicine. There's a very, very, very important difference. Um, you know, this is about providing access to all, regardless of whether they have the ability to pay or not through general taxation. And we've, we've had this in place since 1948. And it, it's probably one of the the more positive um, outcomes of the Second World War and how we decided that universal health care would work, and it does work. And, you know, sure, we pay quite a lot of taxes and we pay VAT on things and, mm -hmm. you know, so-called yeah, added tax and things. And, but, you know, if I wake up tomorrow and I don't feel well and I might need to have an MRI scan, I don't have to worry about it. You know, if I have to have multiple surgeries and have to be in the ITU and all the rest of it, I don't have to worry about it. Whatever it is that has to happen. And, you know, when I uh, retire, I won't have to worry about my health care all the way through our yeah. entire life. It's a cradle-to-grave service. And it's, it's not about anything other than making sure that the population has good health care, good public health, good primary care and good secondary and tertiary care. There's so many myths about this sort of stuff. Um, sure. But it's, you know, it, it is, it's a good system. It works. When you hear about people who are worried about whether they can afford to pay for the next medication, it doesn't happen here. Right. Yeah. When I, when I was there, I remember um, everybody had, I think it was the blue book or something, because um, I would do my pediatrics over there. And like they had all red your book. It's a red, red book. book? Yeah, okay, red book. yeah. Explain a little bit about what that was. So when when you're born in this country, you're you're the, the mom is given a red book, and in that it charts from birth all the way through, and you 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 have it all the way through your childhood. So it has your immunizations, it has your growth charts, it has all of the all of the good stuff to kind of see you through your childhood years into your teenage years so really when you leave high school so about age of 18 and then that's it but you you have okay. that. it's quite interesting because we, we we've recently moved home and this is actually just a temporary house we're having a, a house built at the moment so uh, we're we're here for a little while but um we found the kids read books out and gave them to them oh yeah i bet that's a wonderful way like, just memory to have to flip through yeah um, yeah. I wasn't sure if they kept them forever. I knew they kept them from no. childhood, and so then, okay, so you keep until like eighteen or something. Yeah, okay. and then you and then you can download. Of course, you can download the NHS app onto your phone, and you can access your health records literally on your mobile phone. So it's a national system. You have a national app on your phone. That's nice. And you that can. Nice. And of course, your COVID status is on there too for traveling. Interesting. Okay, so. That is fantastic because actually we have like a lot of times like we can't get x-rays from the hospital or we can't get, they don't have the immunization records because whatever, they just don't have them or we can't get a, a MRI report because we don't have the, the privileges at a certain 
um, sure. you know, imaging center. And so sometimes we just either have to take our patient's word for it or we have to go through this huge long thing to request all this stuff. So to have it all in like one app that has COVID mm -hmm. beds, that has every x-ray, that's actually, that's needed. And so they've actually talked about like syncing EMRs and that type of thing here, electronic medical records. But um, it, it, I mean, it hasn't happened. Even in small communities, it hasn't happened. So I just think of how much time would not be wasted. You don't have to re-extra, re-image, you know, sure. whatever, because it's all there. You could just look it up. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, that, and that's, fantastic. you know, you can carry it around on your mobile phone. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Right. So with COVID, are they requiring like the, the vaccine or like the fact that you've had it to travel? To and from the UK right now? So, um, I spend my weekends, um, at least one day of the weekends, vaccinating. Um, and I was I was there yesterday vaccinating from 9 o'clock to 1 o'clock yesterday. There is now, uh, on the app, you can get your COVID status and you can actually, it's really neat because I don't know if you can see that, but that's, so you get a QR code. So when I, I'm going to be flying, hopefully, in August, um, I'll get to the airport and they can scan the QR code and it'll give them my COVID status. There is talk about um, a travel passport, a COVID travel passport, uh, and certainly across Europe they're talking about that because, of course, we're no longer part of Europe. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to become a global requirement. I can't see it not being a global requirement. I mean, people will have to be able to prove their COVID status. Right. Um, as healthcare workers, we are required to do two lateral flows a week, every single week, report them on an app on our phone, um, which is logged, our status is logged every week. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, I think we'll be carrying a, a passport with us, a, a COVID passport, I think for some time. Uh, we're talking about a booster program, probably late fall here. We're doing pretty well um, in terms of getting everybody double vaccinated. It seems it seems odd to talk about double vaccinated because I mean as healthcare workers we were double vaccinated back in January right. March we were done. I was doing a lot of second vaccines yesterday of the AstraZeneca uh, and uh, a lot of firsts of the Pfizer yesterday. I, I think we'll get there. We'll get there fairly soon, and then there, there's going to be a, a regular booster program. I think for many years to come. There is a project that's being run at the moment where they're trying to combine the COVID-19 vaccine and the seasonal influenza vaccine, mm. so you one shot. Yeah, that would probably increase compliance a lot. So well, they're, both, they're both coronaviruses, aren't they? You know, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, their basis is in the coronavirus. So, you know, the, the, the actual, I mean, I, I don't know much about the science behind it, but it should be possible, and there's, they're talking about some studies that are currently being run over here to see if that's possible. And that'd be great, because the uptake would be fabulous yeah. from influenza and COVID. Yeah. <clears throat> we actually saw so little influenza during COVID. It was like, yeah. ra rarely. I think I've had like two positive in our office. And, you know, because people are social distancing and they're washing their hands and they're wearing a mask. And so it's really funny the the side effect of that, even when we yeah. came out of quarantine, was the fact that we hardly had a flu season. Yeah, and, and that's the same here. In the hospital I work in, we had zero cases of staph flu. Zero. However, there is real concern that because we had one year, that the actual uh, natural immunity may well have been impaired mm -hmm. by it. So there is some concerns about that. So be interesting yeah. to see. 
we thought we were very clever. We thought we were very smart people. And, you know, whatever came our way, we'd be fine. In actual fact, it cut us all short. And, and we've had to learn an awful lot about how to care for people with uh, COVID-19, you know, the different treatments that have been mm -hmm. developed in, in this past year at pace. You know, a real yeah. pace. If you think about the, the time it's taken, it's, it's quite incredible. And then for the vaccines to be developed. So, yeah. you know, we've learned a lot about our resilience and also we've learned a lot about you know, how we react to a global pandemic. I think it's I think it shocked everybody, and I don't think that it will ever happen like this again. I think people thought they were prepared and thought we had systems in place and thought we were ready, you know, with stockpiles and that kind of stuff. And it was little things like ran out of gloves because they all come from one one place, you know, that's not where. And so that I think was a wake up call for you know to think about things that maybe weren't on people's radar when it comes to pandemics or epidemics. Sure. So I think I think when we reflect on this, and I'm sure that uh, when things start to get back to whatever the new normal will be, um, mm -hmm. and there will be a new normal, right? We'll we'll reflect on that, and we will we'll think about how we can do things differently in the future. Uh, and we've lost a lot of people across the world. Listen, this has been so amazing talking to you. <laughs> back. Thank you so much. It was such an honor to interview Professor Phil Begg, and we hope you love this episode and are as excited as we are about the future of PAs globally. Thank you so much for listening. We are pre-PA clinic and are here to help you get into PA school and then get through PA school. Check out the episode notes for more information.